we're grateful today. Uh, we're grateful to be a part of Colossae and be, um, be multiplying uh, this next week. It's awesome. The other emotion, and it's probably not a word that gets used a lot for regular emotions. I don't know what regular emotions are even. Uh, is there a regular emotion? Anyways, the emotion I would say that I feel is incredulity. Okay, um, yeah, here you go. Uh, I feel incredulous. Uh, it means to like, have a hard time believing something. You know what I mean? Where your head and your heart feel like they're still buffering. Right? Like you, your senses are telling you something's happening, and yet you, your heart's going, no way, this can't be here. Maybe you've experienced this in some part of your life before, perhaps a move, right? And you move to a new city or a child, right? That you've, you've known is coming, you've seen the bump, it's there, and then you hold the kid and you don't believe, like, I can't believe I'm a dad or a mom. Or perhaps a house, right? And you finally move in and that day comes and you just feel like, I can't believe we finally like, have this house. And so uh, we feel, I feel, incredulous a little bit that like we're, we're here, this is happening. We've planned it, we wanted it, we prayed for it, but wow, I didn't realize. Like it was for some reason when, when I got the confirmation from U-Haul that our truck was ready to be picked up to take all of our gear to Beaverton today, that was when I was like, oh, I guess this is happening. Yeah, it's like, wow, I guess we're planting a church then. Um, so anyway, I do feel incredulous. And what, what is it that causes me to feel incredulous? I think, if I'm being really transparent, it would be that it is, if I find it, it stretches my imagination to believe that God is so good and so gracious that he would partner with us and use us in this way, in this fresh work. Us as a family, us as a church, us as a people, that he's actually about this and doing this. And he is, and he's shown it in all kinds of ways, but the reality is sometimes it feels too good to believe that God arranges life in this way where he delegates his job to us, right? Like it seems like what, it would be far more efficient if he didn't, right? Like if he just, just kept his job description and didn't give any of it to us, it would be way more efficient, I think, However, that's his arrangement. He prefers things arranged this way. It's always been true of humanity in the garden, right? He said, I've created you to rule. I've created you to do the stuff I would do with the stuff I give you. That's what you're for, right? You're to partner and rule and, and image, and bear my image. And so as a church, um, you know, Chuck showed this graphic to you last week. Just as a church, we, we're people. We have energy and we have resources, and we give ourselves and we give our energy and we give our resources um, to be the church, to be who we are, where we are. And we believe that God calls us to multiply, to send out churches, right? And so you send out people and you send out resources and you send out energy. And the reality is whether or not today you're anticipating going to Beaverton next week or you're anticipating step, uh, just staying here in Tigard, or, or stepping into a, a role in Tigard. Maybe you haven't engaged in any particular way yet here. Um, next week, there's gonna be some opportunities. Right? And I promise there's tons of opportunities in Beaverton. And so as we step out in that way, I think we tend to have a hard time imagining that God has actually delegated these spots to each of us, right? Maybe we think, oh, somebody else could do that, or I, I, I could never, or... I don't know that I've had a close enough relationship with Jesus, or we start to kind of have this checklist of reasons why it seems in, 
uh, incredulous, right, that God would actually be delegating stuff to us, right? And so when I find that I'm incredulous that God would want to partner with me, I find that I have an imagination problem, that my imagination's actually been hijacked by another story, a story other than the gospel story. And so what I want to do today is I want to walk you through a passage in Isaiah chapter 6 where we're going to look at this encounter that Isaiah, the prophet in Israel, has with God and the way it helps us um, map onto our identity as the people of God sent out uh, by the gospel. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Isaiah chapter 6. I almost said Acts chapter 1, but that's next Sunday, so... Isaiah chapter 6 this week. Um, This is uh, one of the passages I regularly have to go back to to baptize my imagination and recall what it means to be called by God, by his grace, and sent by God in his grace. So take a look at this with me. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6. This is the the story of his call to ministry. So chronologically, it takes place before the beginning of the book. In the year, in the year, in the year, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So he tells you when this has taken place. Isaiah has a vision, and it's during the season when this king who had uh, been secluded with leprosy for years and years had just died. In other words, the kingdom's in disrepair. Israel's not doing well. Things are crumbling. It's a dark time. Who shows up? The radiant and the ruling God of Israel. He shows up, and he shows who the real king is. Part of how you know when you have an encounter with God, when he moves from concept to reality, is when you understand that he's on the throne. Just pure and simple. You don't know God if you don't know that he's actually in charge. He's still a concept to you. But when he becomes a reality, as he becomes a reality for Isaiah, you see him enthroned, that he's actually ruling, and he calls the shots, right? And so one king dies, but he has a vision of real reality, and that is that the real king is ruling, and he is on the throne, and that there is a ruler over Israel. And we'll see why it's so important that we understand that God rules. He's worthy of it. Look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim, these creatures, right? Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to the other and he said, holy, 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 full of his glory. This is their job, day and night. It's a, these two creatures, or maybe there's more creatures, but there's creatures called seraphim, and their whole job, their entire existence, is about praising God and his beauty and his glory and his holiness. They just praise him all day long. Some of you have one of these creatures. They have four legs in your house, right? And they greet you, and they just praise you. That's what they're for, right? They're like, this, is, this isn't too bad, right? And they sit at the end of your bed, and, right? Uh, not, well, anyway... These are truly holy creatures. They're just set apart to praise God and his glory and his holiness. And this idea of holiness is this idea of God's moral majesty, his total otherness, his total purity, that he's not corrupted, he's not tainted, he's not divided in his loyalties and his interests, but he's purely devoted to his, um, to his work, his purpose. He's not divided He's utterly pure. And, and in, in Hebrew, there's different ways that you can describe something uh, to be superlative. 
like greater than, above all. And um, so like in Genesis, there's a description of some pits that are really, really like archetypal pits in the ground. And so it doubles the word, pity pits. That's what they are. And so like they're the pittiest of pits, right? And in Hebrew, that's how you say something is really something, right? It's gold, gold, right? Or something like that, right? It's a superlative. One time in the entire Old Testament, you get three of something. It's right here. God is holy, holy, holy. He is utterly above and beyond anything in holiness. Nothing compares. He's a class of his own. And so this holiness that belongs to God, that's descriptive of his character, his utter purity, also has glory. It, it radiates out. And glory, the word for glory, is a word for like weight. You know, when you put a rock in a pond, right, it has a ripple effect. And so when you put, when, when the weight of God's glory comes into your life, it rearranges things. That's the point, right? So Isaiah is having this experience where he's seeing the holiness of God. He's hearing about the holiness of God, and there's glory associated with it. In other words, the weight of God's being and his character is so significant that it rearranges everything else. Part of how you know you've had an encounter with God is not only that he's ruling, but his rule rearranges things in your life. It actually shifts your priorities and your values and what you're about. And so for Isaiah, he sees this holy, glorious God. But what, when we hear about glory, maybe we don't respond like the seraphim who are delighted, right? Maybe when we hear about holiness, we feel threatened because our lives don't actually measure up to his holiness, and so holiness is actually a threat because it, it actually implies our unholiness. Look at what happens next. In verse 4, um, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And then I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Uh, this is, I think, a very typical reaction to a holy God. Come in contact with this God who's king, he's ruling, and his glory rearranges everything in our life, and his holiness implies our lack of holiness. And what's happening, the author is very clear that it's the thresholds that are shaking. It's where Isaiah is coming into view of God. It's where Isaiah is coming into contact with God that feels like an earthquake. And this is true in God's, the story God tells throughout the Bible. When the people of God meet him, they're shaken, right? In Exodus 19, when they meet him at the mountain to receive the Torah, Moses, what happens? There's fire and there's smoke and the earthquakes, Right? And Isaiah meets the living God and there's fire and there's smoke and the earthquakes. And then Acts chapter two, after Jesus ascends, he sends the spirit and the people now are indwelt by God. And what happens? There's something like tongues of fire and the room is shaken, right? And then uh, as the mission unfolds, and we'll see this in this next series in Acts, the people move throughout the world and proclaim another king besides Caesar and the world's turned upside down and the world is shaken, okay? And so here, Isaiah is utterly shaken. This whole experience, this encounter with God shakes him to the core. How does he respond? 
Uh, Isaiah is part of the elite class, by the way. He's associated with the royal family. He's a prophet. He is somebody who is an elite. And now he says this. Woe is me. I'm done. I'm undone. Like, I am toast here. What's the posture of Isaiah before a holy God? He's on his face. He's on his knees, right? He's like, woe is me. Like, don't don't look at me like I'm about to die. I'm not going to live through this. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. As a prophet, his lips are probably his greatest asset, right? Like, this this is his thing. If there's anything you're going to praise about Isaiah, it would be his words. And he goes, the best part of me doesn't measure up. My best asset is nothing because I'm unclean. And my words, by the way, express a heart and a will right? that's unclean. And so he gets it and he confesses his guilt before God. He goes, I'm not, I'm not good. I'm not okay before you and your holiness. I don't measure up. I'm unclean. And so he, this happens in human relationships too. Perhaps you graduate as an all-star athlete at your high school and then you go to a college program and then there's people who are way better than you. What does it do to your self-image? It shatters you, right? Like, I'm gonna quit running because those guys are way faster, right? Or whatever. We, we come in contact with human superlativeness and we begin to kind of shrink back. And what happens with Isaiah? It's all that. It's, it's more increased because he's coming in contact with the holy God. And he goes, my life is unclean. My de- loyalties are divided. My affections are misled. My actions don't have integrity. I'm, I'm unclean. I'm tainted by the people I live among and by my own self. And so Isaiah admits his guilt. And what happens now? As Isaiah comes in contact with God, he's on his face, he's saying, woe is me. That's his posture. How does God interface with this? Does God go, oh, there's sin in my presence, get it away. I can't, I can't be in the presence of sin, you know, because I'm holy. Is that what he does? Look at the narrative, right? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. We've got the fire of God. The angel can't even touch it. He has to have barbecue tongs, right? And so he comes and he brings this purifying fire from the altar and he says, he touched my mouth. Behold, he said, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So what does the holy God do in the presence of sin? He moves towards the sinner. The holy God in the presence of sin moves towards the sinner to redeem sin. It's not that God in his holiness is repulsed by and shuns sin from his presence. It's that God in his holiness uh, is motivated to redeem sin so that we can enjoy his presence. Do you see that? See, this is the good news, actually. That God in, in the presence of sin comes to redeem. And what's fascinating to me is he says, my lips are unclean, and that is precisely where God ministers to Isaiah, right? It's the place of confession of sin. God comes and he brings healing and forgiveness and atonement right to that place of confessed sin. This is significant, right? gives us courage to voice the places, places in our life that are backwards or upside down, uh, that are bent towards sin. It's in those spots that God says, I'm gonna redeem, I'm gonna redeem. 
And so this imagery of cleansing what is unclean is what Isaiah experiences. But what happens? Is Isaiah still on the ground saying, woe to me? No. His posture changes, right? In a moment, we're about to see that God says, who will go for us? Who shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me, right? He's gone from woe to me to here I am, send me. What happened? His entire identity shifted in a moment. The effect of what God had done for him was instantaneous, right? There's no lag time, like when you go and you start to learn how to drive, you get a permit that says we don't trust you with a motorized vehicle yet, you have to have somebody older and taller and bigger and more mature than you in the, driver, in the passenger seat, which I'm like, that's the worst spot for a more mature person to be. I'm just like, still give me control. Anyway, but nonetheless, right, there's a lag time between permission and license, right? And there's no lag time here between, like, God doesn't go, well, I'm not sure that I accept all of your life yet. I don't know that I accept you fully. You're going to have to prove to me based on what you do. That doesn't happen here. He says, no, actually, I am instantaneously taking away your guilt, covering over your sin, right? meeting the demands of justice for what you have done wrong. That's what atone for means here. And, and he's saying, look, I'm sending you now. I've shaken you. I've shaken you to your core. You recognize your guilt. You recognize what your uncle- uh, uncleanness before me. Right? And, and I've atoned for it. I've removed it. I've taken it away. I've given you a whole new identity. You're not a worm on your face before me. You're a partner sent on mission because I've shaken out all the junk, I've shaken out your identity and I've given you a new one, an unshakable identity, right? an atoned for identity. And you wonder, how does this actually happen? I mean, we've got coals coming off of a fire and how, how can Isaiah genuinely be a forgiven person, an accepted, atoned for person, sent as a partner after moments before just being an unclean person? I think this scene goes forward. It has us look forward to a time when another event is going to happen almost exactly like this one. There's going to be a moment where the earth is shattered and the, the, the doorposts of a temple are going to uh, rumble and tremble, so much so that a veil is going to tear. There's going to be a moment when someone gets up on an altar and sin is atoned for. In Matthew 27 we read that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. The ninth hour, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's his cry of desperation. And then a few verses later, he cries out again with a loud voice, giving up his spirit. He dies. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. You see, at this moment, Jesus Christ has been shaken for us, right? When Jesus says in the garden, woe, uh, uh, sorry, my soul is sorrowful even to death, he's saying woe to me. He's saying woe to me because there's not gonna be an angel who's gonna come for him. He's gonna go for us. There's not gonna be something that goes from the altar for him. It's going to be him going to the altar for us. It's gonna be the judge of the world, not bringing judgment, but bearing judgment. He's gonna get shaken to the core so that you and I can have an unshakable identity so that our sin can be atoned for, so that we can actually live accepted by God. So that the holiness of God is no longer a threat, but that it's beautiful to us. 
that we're great, grateful for his holiness, that he's not divided in his loyalties because his loyalties lead to our redemption. So that quake, that glory that we see in Jesus' life, when we see the, the glory of God in Jesus Christ, the one who was shaken for us, the one who has provided atonement for our sin to take our guilt because he took our guilt himself, when that happens, when that comes into your life, it rearranges things, doesn't it? It will shake you. And then the result will be that it will send you. Isaiah chapter six, verse eight, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me, send me. You see, before God had atoned for his sin and dealt with his sin, Isaiah says, woe is me. But now he says, here I am, send me. And the difference is he's had a vision of God's grace, an experience of God's grace, and now a new understanding of his identity and his self. And so now partnering with God in his mission actually makes sense because God's not a threat to him. God's actually security for him. And so there's no room anymore for hiding in fear or shrinking in shame, not for you, not for me, not for Isaiah, not for any of us who on the other side of Jesus Christ who has taken our sin for us. Says, there's no room for being incredulous anymore that I would partner with you. I've removed your sin from you. I've called you into partnership with me. Go, go. So here's, how, how does this all apply, right? How does this actually work into the fabric of our lives. I want to just kind of point out three things this morning uh, that Isaiah's experience, his encounter, actually say to us on the other side of Jesus Christ, who's atoned for our sins. Given the reality of what Jesus has done, how do we respond? First of all, um, we allow Jesus to shake out all of our false selves. We have to allow Jesus to shake out our false selves. It's interesting to me that this calling narrative of Isaiah has Isaiah trembling. And there's another prophet named Jeremiah who starts out trembling. God says, you're gonna partner with me. And he's just freaking out. It's like, I, I can't do it. And God says, don't be afraid, stop trembling. Right? So some of us have a false view of ourselves that says God doesn't desire us, God doesn't want us. And we're over here trembling and he says, stop trembling. Others of us are more like Isaiah and we're actually more rooted in pride and we're like, I think I'm fine. I think God actually kind of needs me, right? Then he, what does he say to us? Start trembling, right? So you have to, right? Both, though, are false views of self. They're both built on our own effort. They're both a view of self that has to do with basically what we do for God, right? And God's got to shake that out entirely. He says, actually, your identity isn't in what you do for me. I'm not asking you to do, do, do anything for me. I've actually given you a new self, and I'm asking you to do something with me. Right? See, if, um, if we end up serving God right, before our, we deal with sin in our life, we're going to serve God so that we secure ourselves. We're going to ultimately serve God out of selfish motivation. I'm going to do this so that. The gospel has it work out the other way, to where he says, actually, you serve God because he's already served you. He's already accepted you. He's already shown you his favor. And so some of us have this false view of ourselves, right? Whether it's too lofty based on our performance or it's too low based on our poor performance, I don't know. He's saying to you, look, shake it out. 
Allow the grace of Jesus to shake it out because the single most defining reality about who you are in union with him is what Jesus has done for you. It's the greatest fact about you, actually. It's what has been done for you. And that makes you who you are. And so one of the things we have to do is we actually have to practice starving our false selves. We actually have to starve them out. That happened for me this week, right? Where I, I, I had plenty of false self-narrative going on. Like, I don't know. I won't bore you with the details. The problem was I needed to expose the lies, right? I needed community to go, ah, you're like, your view is actually built on your performance right now, not on grace. Oh, and then we also need practices of, as you head into the fall. By the way, you're all getting busier, aren't you? You can just feel it. You can feel it in the room. Right? As you, we all have that next thing. And I would say to you, as you head into the fall, build a practice of Sabbath where you actually make time to allow God to tell you who you are, to listen, to allow the scriptures to penetrate into your soul. <laughs> To be before God and say, who am I in front of you? Right? He's going to tell you what the gospel tells you, that you are the beloved, that the Father loves you the same way that he loves the Son, with the same love, the same affection. And so we need practices to starve the false identities and feed the true identity. Right? Practices of community and scripture and prayer. We're building Sabbath. That's the first thing. We, we, we have to shake out or allow Jesus to shake out the false selves. The second thing is we actually have to respond to Jesus by offering our whole selves, okay? See, the, the mission of God isn't something. The mission of God is always someone, right? Because God's about reconciling the world to himself. It's relational. And so what he doesn't actually want something from you. He wants you. And he wants others in relationship with himself. And it's interesting that he doesn't ask Isaiah to do anything before he deals with his sin, Right? He doesn't say who will go for me before Isaiah says, woe to me, right? Hey, your sin's atoned for, now who will go for me? It's interesting, right? Because uh, when God says, who will go for me, Isaiah, having his sin dealt with, has the freedom before God to say, here I am. I'm totally available to you. There's no part of me that I'm afraid for you to see because you've already dealt with my worst. You've already accepted me and you've already made me uh, clean. And so when he says, here I am, he's saying, I am available. It's the same phrase that Abraham uses in Genesis chapter 22 when God says, Abraham, Abraham, and he says, here I am. What does God want with Abraham's availability in Genesis 22? Him to offer up his son, right? Availability says, I'll take whatever seems most important to me and I'll make it available to you. I'll make my time available. I'll make my stuff available. I'll make my money available. I'll make my love and my affection available to you, God. Use it for your glory. Use it for your kingdom. I'm not gonna withhold and build little compartments that say, this one's for me. You can have this hour on Sunday, but you can't have this. Responding to the gospel means responding with our whole selves and saying, I'm available. Here I am. Here I am on Sunday, sure. Here I am throughout the rest of the week. Here I am first thing in the morning at work. Here I am as I put the kids to, to bed. Here I am as I walk with my neighbor. I'm available to you. See, no room for compartments here. It's, it's actually very important that grace actually is holistic in our lives. If we see and understand grace appropriately, it will result in us being available, right? 
because we recognize that in grace, God gives us himself, right? So that we actually have a self that's rooted in him. And so little compartments actually don't make sense. The only thing that makes sense is our whole selves being available to him. There's this great little bit in the uh, C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. Anybody ever read that book? It's this like allegory about some people walking to the mountains of heaven. It's kind of weird, but um, everybody starts out as a ghost and becomes solid. Anyway, <laughs> it's cool. Um, C.S. Lewis, though, def- describes this guy who starts out as a ghost, and he's got this little lizard attached to his shoulder. I don't know if you remember this. This lizard represents his lust, right? His like, misdirected sexual desire. And so as this guy uh, approaches kind of the heaven zone, got the, the w- lizard's like whispering stuff into his ear, and so he starts to veer off in a different direction, and an angel shows up and is like, you know, I can, I can tell him to shut up for you. He's like, yeah, I'd be really interested in that. He's like, okay, I'm going to have to kill him. <laughs> and he's like, oh, ah, that seems harsh. I think a gradual process of removal will do, Right. And the angel's like, yeah, a gradual process will do nothing for you. Like, all, all moments are present in this moment. Make a decision, right? And so he finally cons- con- gives his consent to allow the lizard to be killed, right? He finally go- gives in, and it feels so painful uh, initially, right? <laughs> he says, ow, oh, you know, and he's like, oh, I, I promised you that it wouldn't kill you if I killed it. I didn't promise that it wouldn't hurt, you know? And then it continues on, and then finally this lizard is kind of like destroyed, but then it becomes a stallion, right? And then he stops being a ghost, and he becomes a solid, awesome soldier. And they ride off together, right? And it's this picture, this allegory of like, when we actually allow God to crucify the stuff in our life that's in rebellion to him, he's redemptive with it. Like, it doesn't actually kill us. It actually gives us life when we give our whole selves to him, right? And so those, for him, it's, he, that misdirected sexual desire became instead like this, like, rightly directed affection and love, right? And it becomes this beautiful thing. And so for you, it may not be, the compartments of your life may not be misdirected sexual desire. Maybe something else. It may be your beach house. It may simply be your schedule. But to allow the Lord to say, hey, I, would you crucify the selfish way I use this part of my life and allow instead my whole life to be in service, available to you. That's, that's what we're saying actually leads to freedom. Here's the final thing. When we actually allow God to shake us, shake us of our false selves and, and send us, and our, send us, our whole selves, it, it also leads to what will ultimately become discouragement if you look at it as if this is all on you. But if you look at it through the lens of what God is up to, it will, it, it will be actually encouraging to you. The, the last thing is we, we actually have to trust the results of our following Jesus, trust the results of our bearing witness to Jesus. We actually have to trust all the results to Jesus. And you do it by persisting with expectancy. The end of the, uh, I'll just summarize this for time, at the end of this passage, um, Isaiah signs up to go preach a message to Israel without knowing what God's gonna do with it. He says, yeah, send me. And God's like, oh, by the way, you're gonna preach and no one's gonna like it, no one's gonna respond, no one's gonna like your Instagram hashtag. Like, it's, you're gonna actually feel like a failure. You're gonna preach and preach and preach and preach and it's actually, you're gonna be putting the cookies on the bottom shelf so much so that everything's so clear that the people's hardness of heart is gonna be revealed 
and you're going you're gonna to feel like a failure. This is actually my design, Isaiah, right? He's like, how long? How long do I have to preach and have nobody respond to me? Well, and God says, until the land is desolate, until all of my people go into exile, that's, that's how long. And it's going to look like, the land's going to look like it's recently been forested, but here's the deal. In the stump is the holy seed, right? This is the final line of this chapter. Here's what this means for us, that uh, when we trust the results of serving Jesus and partnering with Jesus to Jesus, we can live persistently in spite of how it goes, and we can live with expectation, expectancy for what he'll end up doing, even when it doesn't look like it's going well. For Isaiah, it looks like a lifetime of preaching a message to a hard-hearted people. For you, it may just be persisting in that relationship with that neighbor, just continuing to stay engaged, stay in the fight of loving them. It may mean continually being okay, being known as someone who believes in the resurrection, even though it seems laughable, right? It may mean just continuing, keeping at it, a long obedience in the same direction, but you do it with expectancy because it's actually not us that produces the results, right? Paul waters, Apollos, or Paul, you know, in Second, First Corinthians 3, Paul sows some seed, but Apollos waters it. Who provides the growth? It's God, right? God's the one who puts the seed in the stump. So we persist no matter what. We persist with expectation because there is a seed in the stump, right? And God is going to bring about his kingdom. He's going to unveil his kingdom. We keep at it in spite of results. So how do we actually persist with expectancy? Here's how today. We take a meal every week. We take a meal that nourishes us and says, keep going. Because this meal that we take every week, it's a symbolic meal. It's bread and juice or wine. And it's a meal that poises us between memory and hope. And we look back with memory on one hand saying, this is what God has done. This is the single greatest fact about me is that I'm redeemed. My sins atoned for. My guilt is taken away. I'm a partner with Jesus in his kingdom work. But it's also hope because there's a a meal that anticipates a greater meal. At one point, we're actually going to celebrate and the the, the wine's going to flow and we're going to celebrate. All tears are going to be gone. And God's God's holy seed's in the stump. Even though it doesn't look like things are going his way, he says, keep persisting. Keep celebrating the meal between memory and hope because one day I will bring the kingdom in full. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, that you do not lock us into our worst moments, but that you instead invite us to be bound to you in union through your spirit by your son. We thank you that you give us a new self. It's not rooted in what we do. It's rooted in what you've done. And that self means boldness. It means courage and it means partnership. So we will persist this week in expectation that you will unveil your kingdom. God, as we multiply as a church and as we step into places of of servanthood in the church and in the world, Jesus, bring your kingdom. Bring your kingdom, Lord, through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.